This episode of Invest Like the Best is brought to you by Paxos. I have personally interviewed Paxos's CEO, Chad Cascarilla, on this podcast before, and I'm excited about how they're changing the crypto landscape. Whether you're a small fintech or a large financial institution, with Paxos Crypto Brokerage, you can offer your customers crypto buying, selling, transferring, and more, all with Paxos's easy-to-integrate APIs. Paxos takes care of everything in the back end, from licensing and compliance to custody and exchange. You can start offering crypto to your customers within months. I've gotten to know Paxos over the years and have been personally impressed with their track record. With clients that include PayPal, Venmo, Revolut, and Bank of America, they're the most trusted infrastructure provider for crypto and blockchain. I'm excited that more fintechs and banks are starting to offer crypto features, and Paxos Crypto Brokerage is the best way to get to market quickly and safely. To learn more, visit paxos.com forward slash Patrick. That's P-A-X-O-S dot com forward slash Patrick. This podcast is sponsored by CFA Institute, the global association of investment professionals whose mission is to lead the investment profession by promoting the highest standards of ethics, education, and professional excellence for the ultimate benefit of society. CFA Institute serves a global community of investment professionals working to build an investment industry where investors' interests come first, financial markets function at their best, and economies grow. The Chartered Financial Analyst Credential is the most respected and recognized investment management designation in the world. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of CFA Institute. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Patrick O'Shaughnessy, and this is Invest Like the Best. This show is an open-ended exploration of markets, ideas, methods, stories, and of strategies that will help you better invest both your time and your money. You can learn more and stay up to date at InvestorFieldGuide.com. Patrick O'Shaughnessy is the CEO of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Patrick and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. My guest this week is Anthony Pompliano. Pomp began his career in the military and has since been a successful entrepreneur, worked as a head of growth at Facebook, and started Full Tilt Capital, an early stage investing firm in North Carolina. This conversation has three memorable sections. Early on, we discuss the four traits that Pomp looks for in founders, which we cover in detail. These double as traits that are important when hiring anyone. Next, we discuss his unique take on cryptocurrencies, where he is excited about the prospects for tokenized securities. Finally, we explore a unique media company, Barstool Sports, and what makes it such a powerful brand. Please enjoy our somewhat abbreviated discussion and know that we will continue the conversation soon. Anthony, this is going to be a really fun, wide-ranging conversation given the diversity of things that you've done in your past. Maybe it would be fun in this case to start chronologically. You've got an unusually long military background relative to most people I've had on the podcast, kind of a unique angle or start to a career. Maybe we could just start there by you describing what you were doing. I know you spent some time in the intelligence side of the military, and we'll use that as a way to get into the rest of your career. Absolutely. So I started my career, spent six and a half years in the Army, both in and out of the reserve and active components. Did a deployment overseas to uh, to Iraq and did everything from infantry to 
route clearance, kind of looking for roadside bombs, ambushes, and then uh, intelligence support. So basically when things would go wrong or anything would happen while we were on the ground with the infantry units uh, gathering intelligence and bringing it back to help the actual intelligence teams piece everything together. So when you first commit, I'm sure it's not as long of a commitment as you spent over there, which which implies that you probably recommitted to spend more time. Yeah. So I actually signed, uh, most military contracts are actually eight years, right? So people who just go active all the way through, they do a I think it's like two or four years active, and then uh, the rest of the remainder of the eight years they spend on a uh, individual ready reserve, an IRR, which basically means you're out, kind of, unless we really need you, and then we can pull you back. And then after that eight-year period, they're completely out. I actually signed initially with the National Guard. So I signed coming out of high school. I knew I was going to go to school. I played football at Bucknell University, and it was a way that I could do the military service plus uh, still go to school. And then after that, I'd figure out, you know, how I wanted to kind of finish out the military service. But during my junior year of college, I actually got uh, deployed. So I was unprotected. I wasn't in ROTC or anything like that. And so literally one day go from a 20-year-old kid, you know, worried about football practice and, you know, parties or, you know, school, whatever, to uh, I got deployed with a bunch of guys who are, you know, young 30s. Uh, They got families and kids and mortgages. And I'm like, where am I? (laughs) Right. Both from like, you know, human perspective, but then also obviously, you know, you're sitting in the Middle East with a gun and you're like, okay, this is a little bit different. What was your most memorable experience over there? The people. I've never experienced such volatility in the way that a single population looks at you. So then, you know, I've been very fortunate in my life to to do a bunch of traveling. And I think that, you know, most countries either they really like Americans, they don't like Americans, somewhat of a generalization, but there's a, a sentiment. Iraq was one of these places where there was people who absolutely loved us and looked at us as liberators. And, you know, they could not be more happy for us to be there. And literally on the same street, there's a 14 year old kid who's looking at you and it's just hate. And you're like, look, this kid would literally hurt me if he had the opportunity. And so I think it was very telling to me. I was 20, right? When I went, uh, turned 21 when I was there. And you just get to see, I think, the human perspective and how it can change based on their individual experiences. And so you start talking to these people and you realize like, why does that 14 year old kid hate you? Well, like some, I don't know, a roadside bomb went off and it was targeted at a U.S. convoy instead it killed his dad or his uncle. And like, I think back and I'm like, if somebody came to my country and that happened to me, I probably, like this kid's actually handling it pretty well, right? And, and so, you know, I think that when you start to really understand the intricacies and complexities of war and geopolitics and, you know, all this stuff, it's, it's not as simple, I think, is kind of, you know, the headline of a newspaper. And so when you see that, it's just really eye-opening. What was the transition like out of the military and maybe what the seeds were for your investment philosophy or your interest in business and investment? So I was very fortunate. A lot of the guys that I went with, we were there during a time of like pretty heavy combat and, and all this stuff. I was there 2008, 2009. A lot of people were kind of the 2006 to 2010 era. PTSD is rampant, you know, all this stuff. Uh, when I came back, I actually went back and finished school. And so I went from a military unit, which was all male, very kind of macho, very, you know, violence driven to a football team that's all male, you know, very macho, very violence driven, just without weapons. And so I, you know, I credit a lot to, you know, opportunity. I had to go back and and finish school, play football to kind of softening the transition a little bit and making it um, a little bit easier compared to guys who had to go back and they're immediately working a nine to five job and no one can relate to them. And just, it's difficult. And so I think that when you pull that out to investing, you know, I think a lot of my friends would say my philosophy and outlook on life changed a lot. 
when you see that type of environment, we literally can die tomorrow. And it sounds very cliche, but you just want to live life, have as much fun and, and kind of the fullest. And then two is uh, we live in a global world. And so I actually think that people who don't have the ability to travel are at a huge disadvantage when it comes to life in general, but, but really investing, especially as the borders of our nations matter less and less to the global markets. And, and so that experience at you know a relatively young age, I think really just kind of was a it seared in my mind like hey this is a global world where people have different perspectives and they have different experiences and, and so if you need to understand that in order to you know succeed on that global scale let's talk about the unique thesis that full tilt has not just thesis in terms of industries you know things like crypto etc but also sort of the the founding ethos of the firm things like deal economics things that set the firm apart maybe we could start there with the deal economics yeah so when me and my partner started uh, full tilt we really went back and we said We've never worked at an investment firm before. We've never worked at a venture firm, a private equity firm, anything. We're not conditioned to believe something is true. A lot of people think that's a disadvantage, but if we look at that as an advantage, why don't we actually go look at the data and see what is the right thesis, deployment strategy, you know, all these things that I think people who just grow up in venture, specifically, they just take it as kind of gospel. And so what we realized when we looked at the data was uh, there's a lot of misconceptions. So one of the biggest things was the only thing that matters for the outsized returns is being in the best deals early. So your follow-on decision, your check size, you know, all of these like intricate investment strategies, that can make a good deal great. It can't make a bad deal good. And so if you're just looking at it from a binary perspective, the key is how do we get into the best deals as early as possible? And so from a capital perspective, we started out writing fifty dollars to $100,000 checks, and we wanted to be in as many deals as possible. But we're investing so early that everyone else was doing diligence on you know what is the market, what is the competitors, what is all this stuff. And we'd built enough companies ourselves where we were, said, all this is going to change. Literally, the team is, everything is going to change in this dynamic environment from the product they're building, the market they're in, their competitors, the funding, all this stuff. The one thing that is likely to not change is who's running the company. And so we just focus on who is that person and why do they do what they do? How do they make decisions? You know, are they not going to give up? Right? I mean, like that's like one of the easiest or one of the easiest signals, but also the hardest thing to get at. And so we said, if we just back the right founders, they'll figure everything else out. And if we're there to kind of help when they need help, we've got a higher probability of being successful. And so we started doing that and we invested uh, 64 companies in the first fund. It has gone much better than our wildest dreams. And really the way that we measure that is, I think one is just like cash on cash returns. Two is who are we investing alongside or who has followed on? And then how many companies go to zero? And so to date, we are now 18 months in, we've had three of the 64 go to zero. We've had one company that was acquired Cash on cash returns will take a while to measure, right? So, so that's always kind of the question mark. But then we've been incredibly fortunate to invest alongside or, or be followed on by, you know, the entries in Horowitz, the founders funds, the the lowercase, the NEAs of the world. And so I think that for a firm that's sitting in Raleigh, North Carolina, that prides itself on trying not to meet the founders in person before making an investment, I think people are kind of there's something here that is different because the results are you know, impressive, I think, to our LPs, et cetera. So your results are, based on that description, going to hinge on your ability to evaluate founders and some of these characteristics. And Absolutely. I'm a quant, so I can never help but try to dimensionalize this stuff and maybe poke at what you believe are the key attributes. You already mentioned kind of persistence being one. That seems like an obvious one. Yep. What are the other attributes you're looking for? And maybe for each one specifically, how do you suss them out? We've spent a ton of time trying to build a actual like mathematical way to quantify this stuff. It is 
incredibly difficult to do. <laughs> I always say I want to build the SAT for founders, but like one that actually shows, you know, the, the probability of being successful. And so we've got some hacks that we've tried, but but ultimately what we're trying to get at is some key characteristics. Persistence is by far the number one indicator of success. We have seen companies that we passed on that we thought the founder was incredibly smart. They end up getting some sort of traction, something goes wrong, they give up, company's down. We would rather invest in someone who's not as smart, not as creative, whatever, but is not going to give up because at least we've got a shot, right? right. Persistence is really important and, and probably understated by most investors. Two is goes back to this idea of empathy. And empathy really revolves around a whole host of things. So we look at, have they had a very wide variety of uh, life experiences, job experiences? Uh, have they traveled a lot? Somebody who is trying to build technology for a restaurant and has never worked at a restaurant, it's really hard to wrap your head around how they're going to understand, you know, everyone from the cashier to the waiter to the cook. And so it's not a requirement, but we think that just having that breadth of experience is really important. The third thing is there are communication skills. So life, whether we like it or not, is people and communication. One of the things that we always ask for is I want to see a lot of your previous updates, whether they're to advisors, your in internal team, investors, whoever. And it's less about like the substance and it's much more about are they clearly articulating ideas? How thorough are they? How consistent are they with their updates? Can I see the progression of their thought process and how they're explaining? We made a projection. We missed it. Here's why it happened. You know, all that kind of stuff. So that's the writing aspect. And then frankly, they got to get us excited. And that's like hard to quantify. But yeah. like <laughs> if you're asking an investor for money and you can't get that investor excited about what you're doing. It's hard for that investor to then see how you're going to get potential teammates excited to join the company, other investors excited to invest, customers to be become customers. Like That's a key piece, and it's part storytelling, it's part enthusiasm, it's part just the idea of uh, communicating inevitability, all of these things. And so that one in particular really goes back to the name of the firm. So Full Tilt Capital, I loved it for two reasons. So my partner came out with it, and, and uh, one is just like everyone thinks of poker. And they're like, oh, you're early stage investing. You've got this like pray and spray is what everyone would say, right? And so like you're gambling. That's fine. But if you actually look at the definition of the word, it's mass acceleration at top speed. So exactly what we want to do, we want to take things that are not moving and get them as much momentum as quickly as possible because our belief is momentum makes the four key tenets of building a company easier. So this is hiring, customers, fundraising, and press. So if those four things become easier because you've built momentum, again, you're increasing probability of being successful, but you're not guaranteed. And so uh, I, I think that those are some of the aspects and there's a whole host you know, more, but it's really just trying to pick at a founder and, and, and what makes them tick and how they make these decisions. And, and ultimately, like I told a founder the other day, I said, if investors could, the ideal scenario would be we would put you through a simulation and we would see like how you would act in all these situations. And then we'd go back to making the decision like, do we want to be on that ride with you or not? Right? Like that would be ideal. We can't do that. So instead, questions we ask, things we look at, like we're trying to figure out how you're going to act or you know make decisions in those environments moving forward without being able to do the simulation. What I find so interesting about the checklist, so to recap it, persistence, empathy, communication, salesmanship, basically the four things you ticked off, none of those are taught in school which is like criminal because here you've got this sort of paradigm of the American dream and entrepreneurial you know, spirit of, of the US and the four key ingredients, at least according to you, are things that we don't really formally learn. We have to, have to kind of teach ourselves in the real world. Yeah. And, and I think you get them through life experiences. So, sure. so it, it's- about uh, travel is a good one. Yeah. yeah and, and it's part of it is like, hey, if you don't understand finance, 
us or somebody else can either teach it to you or we can hire somebody who understands finance. So it's just like those are problems that can be solvable, but I'm not going to change whether you're persistent or not. I'm not going to be able to do anything to change whether you know you have empathy or not. And so it's the it's trying to understand the non-controllable things and then everything else we can figure out. There's a question I've started to ask people, which especially given your military background, this is kind of an interesting one, which is the time or times in your life where you feel like you've had the most on the line. So sort of when you've taken the biggest risks, the biggest leap, like every founder is taking a huge leap, right? Um, feeling very personally exposed. Um, what would the answer be for you in terms of looking back where, where you felt the most exposed or at risk in a positive sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think there's probably three separate times. One, uh, definitely, you know, deploying overseas, it, it, you don't even you understand what you're repair, yeah, yeah. like. You don't even understand what you're doing, really, right? Like you're like going and you've done all this training and all you know, whatever. But but that's definitely one. Two, when I went to Facebook, I moved out there. I knew one person. They weren't involved in the tech industry, and I just did it. And I'm so glad that I did because it just like threw myself into an, a completely different environment. I mean, I think it's a testament to the tech industry in general. Of like, here's a random kid from Raleigh, North Carolina, who moves out working at one of the large tech companies and was able to be accepted into a community and, and, and meet all these great people. And, and just, there was no judging. There was no anything. It was just, Hey, you're one of us. And so I think that that was uh, another time where I felt exposed and then very quickly was like, Oh, like everything's going to be okay. And then the third one was uh, starting the fund. And with the fund, it was less about what are we going to go do in the, in the conviction and doing it. It was the first time that I took somebody else's money and said, I'm going to go put this on the line. And like, whether we're successful or not does not only impact me, like it impacts you. And so I laugh because like the first couple of times I talked to, you know, potential LPs, I was like, by the way, give me a small amount of money as possible. <laughs> right. And as you get more and more confidence, you realize like, Hey, this person's not giving me money. That's going to like affect their family. Yeah. But that's kind of how I looked at it at first. And, and so I, I try to remind myself that like, you know, when you're making these decisions, it's less about like the decision today. It's the decision I make. Can I go back and defend this in a conversation where I say I lost your money? Can I look somebody in the eye and say, I lost your money? And I think that changes the way you think about making decisions in a positive way, right? And so it, that, that's kind of an exposure that, that people get, I think it takes time to get used to. I'm always fascinated by the dichotomy of skill and luck explaining outcomes in, in all investing. And there's no doubt that there's a mix and there, it's a sliding scale and different parts of the market involve different degrees of both. In the venture world, I've always had trouble disentangling these two things. But one thing that I'm sure of is that in the venture world, just like everywhere else, real alpha a real skill-based excess return, we'll call it, comes when you originate, when you do different things, when you've got a different perspective, different information, different analysis, better discipline to stick to this, you know, the four attributes, for example, that you look for in founders. That's really kind of the only way to earn true differentiated excess return that's based on skill and not luck. So I'm curious today, as you look kind of at the world and maybe not just technology, you mentioned your industry agnostic, where are some of those areas are that you're focusing on, where the market maybe isn't paying enough attention or it's paying too much attention? What What is the differentiated view that Full Tilt has today? So one, I think most investors are not willing to admit that there's more luck than skill. I mean, there's been enough academic research. I've seen it, you know, just myself personally, where they'll say, hey, stack rank your portfolio. So you've sourced these, you've vetted them, you made the decision, you're not getting updates, you're on the board, whatever. Stack rank the outcomes of your investment today and let's see how it plays out. They're always wrong. 
and, and it's just a dynamic environment. And so I've always looked at it as a probability game. I just want to put ourselves in a position where we have a higher probability of being successful than less. So that's like more of the framework. And so when we looked at it for our second fund. Um, we are going to exclusively focus on protocols, tokenized securities, and blockchain. And tokenized securities, I think, is the one area that is the most interesting. What convinced us to go ahead and really make the leap 100% into it was we said, look, in five years, do we think people are raising money through price equity and convertible debt or tokenized securities? And I am absolutely convinced it is going to be tokenized securities. And the reason is it's a more advantageous mechanism for both the founder and the investor. So if it was more advantageous for either side of that relationship, I don't think that we'd have as much conviction, but it actually helps both sides. Can you describe why it's more, I certainly get why it's more advantageous to not dilute themselves for the issuer of the the token, but why for the investor? So you get liquidity faster. A lot of times right now, how the deals are being structured, you're actually getting equity in the business, plus you're getting a token. So there's um, a a pro rata ownership in both. And then it ends up solving a lot of the transferability, the obviously liquidity. And and then one of the other pieces that we think is really interesting, or or the part that we think is the most interesting in the crypto space is, has nothing to do with decentralization. It has to do with fractional ownership in a global 24-7 marketplace. And and so when you look at fractional ownership in, in that global marketplace, those are things that are not applicable or they don't exist when it comes to convertible debt or price equity. And so if you've got an emerging industry where more and more of the tech talent is starting to shift their focus, and I think that will continue, and there's this new mechanism for fundraising that provides advantages to investors that we know are problems in the large companies that have been successful today, they're solved. And then from a founder perspective, it's more attractive. Why would people not go do that? So let's dive into, uh, I really like this angle on it, right? I'm frankly sometimes sick of talking crypto just because it's so incredibly <laughs> ubiquitous. And, and Everybody thinks we're building like the new world order. Yeah, right? yeah. It's like, everyone just relax for a second. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of overdone. And, you know, I've certainly spent a lot of time on it, but this is, this is a fairly unique angle. So equity debt, you know, the, the traditional investing instruments represent a legal claim on some, you know, stream of cash flows or residual uh, interest in a business. So when you say tokenized securities, I think what you mean is a token which embedded in the ownership of that is a legal claim on some stream of cash flows or some underlying asset or or something. So, so could you describe in as much detail as you can, like very specifically what you think that means and whether or not it will require changes in regulation for that to be realized. So I'll give you two examples. Let's use a business and let's use a piece of real estate. Tokenized security for a business is literally tokenizing a share of the company. So we think that uh, while today there's a bunch of questions around regulation, et cetera, I think that regulators have been very clear that they do not want to just stomp on this innovation and say, like, we're going to absolutely ban it. But they're also not going to let the Wild West continue where, you know, there's some pretty obvious scams and, and stuff going on. Um, and, and so we think that there will be tightening of regulation you know, for a like a net good. And we think that that tokenized security will look very similar to what shares look like, but just have a couple of new advantages for investors and founders. When you look at real estate, for example, very similar to how crowdfunding works. But again, you're providing a token, fractional ownership, global 24-7 marketplace. But what you're able to get there, uh, let's say it's a uh, income producing uh, real estate, you can structure it to uh, tokenize the actual equity of the hard asset, you could tokenize the only the revenue stream and allow the owner to retain 100% equity, or you could do some mix. And, and so what we think is this mechanism is so new that the regulators haven't even figured out where are the kind of boundaries and the rules. But what we see is the good actors are going to be able to take a blend of the existing kind of traditional world of fundraising, et cetera, and apply it with this new mechanism. And it's not going to be binary. It's not going to be, hey, do you 
fundraise privately or do you conduct an ICO? There's going to be this, um, like almost like the center of a Venn diagram. And that is where we believe uh, tokenized securities are going to exist. Um, and we actually think that's going to be the largest asset class when you look at you know how capital is deployed five years from now. And really it's because that's where you're going to get the traditional capital allocators and the new capital allocators where they can kind of meet in the middle and then that's where they see uh, you know opportunity. I want to come back in a second to how you then play this as an investor. Yeah. Right? So <laughs> you assume that that outcome is true. Like what are the types of companies that will benefit from that that truth coming to be? But first, I just want to spend a minute on on your opinion on liquidity as a sort of an idea. So I've always been fascinated by more liquid instruments, let's say the securitization of a very liquid real estate asset or something like that, as an interesting means to bring capital into a sector where, where it was typically difficult to get capital in before. Obviously, this would be like a, an extreme example of that where you can tap previously untappable capital sources. But do you worry that that could be a, a really vicious double-edged sword where you know ETFs seem great, but maybe the fact that like you can trade them so often is actually terrible, right? And maybe part of the VC advantage is that you can't go in and mess it up for 10 years. So how do you think about that? It's the Uber example, right? Everyone's like, you know, oh, I wish my Uber stock was uh, was liquid. And then, you know, most investors are like, yeah, I would have sold it at the $2 billion valuation, right? Because I thought I had a home run. And it continued to obviously increase in value. I personally am a fan of shifting the decision making onto the individual investors. And I think that if you sell early, you trade too much, you whatever, you live and die with your own decisions rather than there's some subset of people that would have let the Uber valuation reach, you know, sixty-nine billion. They would have been geniuses and sold at the top and then, you know, everyone else takes a little haircut. Probably not that many of them, but but there's some somebody would have done that. And and so I think that it's optimizing for optionality for investors um, is really important, but also doing it in a way that fits within legal frameworks that I think most of us agree are good to prevent you know, the frauds, the scams, all that kind of stuff. And so the nice thing about tokenized securities as it stands today is you still, they're accredited investors, right? They're not the you know grandma who's putting in a hundred dollars who you know is going to hurt if she loses it. And, and so I think from a liquidity standpoint, teams are being smart. I'm now starting to see teams who are doing these uh, token sales where the team is locking themselves up for four, six, eight years. And they're asking investors for long uh, lockups as well. And so I think that when you give optionality, you say, hey, look, you could be liquid day one, but we're going to allow the teams and investors to decide, do they want to self-impose you know, lockups, et cetera? It ends up just being, again, a net good for the industry. So then how, back to that original question of how you then invest according to this thesis, are you investing in LLCs? Are you buying tokens? Are you buying SAFs? Like what, what is the actual expression of this idea? So we're definitely still figuring it out with everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> and part of this is just being honest enough with ourselves of like, there's no answer. There's no right answer to how this is going to all play out, but we think that we can help figure it out along with everybody else. Right now we are solely focused on, uh, or actually one thing that's important to call out. So we look at this industry in a very, very risk-adjusted way. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Howard Marks, and, and Howard, you know, I'm a paraphrase, and basically says, in order to have top 5% of returns, you have to take such an inordinate amount of risk that you can end up in the bottom 5% if you're wrong. And so like, if you want to be on the extreme and have the binary outcome of top five, bottom five, like that's great. That's not what we want to do. So we're more than happy to just hit above average returns for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. And what that ends up doing is it makes you one of the best investors in the world. Um, and, and so when you compare that to the mania of crypto today, like there's not very many people who are, hey, I'm cool with a 50% annual return. Like I want the 30,000% ripple return, right? In 2017. So I think for us, we actually are, are setting the fund up in, in a very interesting structure where we're incentivizing ourselves with added carried interest for returning capital, the principal investment to LPs on a faster time frame. Interesting. So 
in the first fund, uh, we charge no management fee. Um, we'll continue to do that moving forward. We think it's really important to just align you know, our incentives with our investors. We don't make money until they make money, right? And in fact, we don't make money until we've returned their capital and then they start to make money. And so I think here, what we figured out was if we incentivize ourselves to return the principal investment amount in 18, 12, six months, our investors actually have a very large appetite to give us more and more carried interest. In venture, you can't do that. You can never say to someone, I'm going to return your capital in 12 months because it's just not going to happen. When there's liquidity, though, there's the potential to be able to do that. And so we're still kind of working out exactly how that will look, but that's definitely something that um, both our LPs and us are really excited about. And so I think that when it comes to investing, we really like uh, hard assets. So the tokenizing of all these hard assets, um, we think is a, is a massive market that uh, is one, just beginning, and two, um, there's a very small number of people who understand uh, what I would consider more traditional finance, and then also like this tokenized world. And so again, trying to find like where is there very little competition and just massive market opportunity. So that's one. Two is we've already incubated a, uh, we're now at three mining facilities um, within the venture fund. And really the thought process there is we don't look at it as a crypto investment. We look at that as a pure real estate investment. So depending on where the price point is, depending on your electricity costs, et cetera, these are investments where you're investing in a hard asset and you're able to two, three, four, five X return on an annual basis there's nowhere else you're going to do that investing in infrastructure and you know real estate. Why would we not want to deploy capital there? And so I think that, again, we just look at it as how do we protect the downside as much as possible? And we don't need the 15X. We're cool with two. <laughs> how do you think about the commodity risk there? So assuming the cryptocurrencies themselves, in this case, are the commodity being mined. I'd love to hear a little bit about Standard American Mining. Great name for an interesting, uh, an interesting company that you've incubated. So maybe you could describe how that business is structured. But it seems like that whole thing is predicated, the 2x, the 3x, whatever, is just predicated on the on the coins or the things being mined, not crashing in value. So we completely eliminate the risk. We sell into cash immediately. So again, we just look at it as just like if I had a franchise business, I would get a physical location, I would put employees in, I would do some activity and I'd get revenue. We look at this as we get a physical location, our employees are the machines, they do an activity and we receive revenue. That revenue is in the form of Bitcoin, Ethereum, whatever, and we immediately sell into fiat. And so it's just a cash flow business, which every single person who's ever mined will be yelling and screaming when they hear this and they'll say, I can't believe you're doing that. It you know appreciated 300% afterwards. That's fine. But again, we don't need the ridiculous you know, returns. We're okay to 3Xing. And so I think that's like the short term. The long term is that's race against time. So because you can pay back your initial investment so quickly, you're basically making the decision, can I recoup my investment before the likelihood of a crash? And so if that if you said to me right now, hey, that's a five-year payback period, probably not going to pull the trigger on it. If you tell me it's three months, I got a lot more confidence now. Can you describe standard American mining, like what's unique about it and, and what it does? There's literally nothing unique about it, right? Which is kind of the beauty of it. So we take mining hardware. We put it onto uh, energy sources that are free, near zero cost, whatever. What are those sources? So right now, two of the facilities are just traditional energy from local grid. One of them is we have a business that my partner runs day to day that takes whole car tires, puts it through a thermal demanufacturing process, uh, which is a big word for basically burns it within a cylinder. And uh, it breaks the tire down into uh, carbon, oil, steel, and syngas, sells the uh, oil and the um, steel as a uh, commodity, and then uh, basically creates energy through a turbine. And uh, we self-consume that energy uh, on site and uh, use it to mine the cryptocurrency. Hmm. 
fascinating stuff. Yeah, it was. Uh, that, I don't think that was in the plan when they originally built the uh, built the plant. But uh. I've seen you write before about the shift from a CPU world to a GPU world. Uh, that's something that we haven't really talked a whole lot about on the podcast. Maybe you could explain that idea. I believe that's going to happen. Right. Two, I think that the United States is drastically behind many other countries. And three is this shift really today, there's not that many job requests for GPU farms. GPU being just a can maybe describe what the, the fundamental difference is. Yeah. So, so basically with, with the CPU, it's somewhat of an elementary computational capability. GPU is more complex, right? It's kind of the, the very basic definitions. And so with GPU, you can do things like mine cryptocurrency, you can do CGI rendering, you can do AI simulation, you know, all this stuff. And so as the need for more and more complex computational power kind of permeates society, there will be a shift to, obviously the hardware will, will kind of be built up to, to fulfill the demand. And so what we think is most of the uh, CPU world is based on today's technologies. And that's why those farms were built and those data centers were built. As the demand increases on the GPU side, the Googles, the Amazons of the world, all the way down to, you know, kind of the local regional data centers are going to have to shift and, and fulfill that demand. If you look today at how that shift is going, it's going very slowly outside of the crypto world. But in the crypto world, you know, there's 200, 500 megawatt facilities that are being built all over the world. And so what is nice about the GPU-based mining versus the ASIC mining, if you put in a GPU piece of hardware, you don't just have to mine, you know, Ethereum, Zcash, et cetera. You can then use that to do CGI right, rendering, AI, or, AI yeah. whatever. So again, it de-risks a lot of the hardware investment. Whereas with an ASIC, like you're pretty much going to mine Bitcoin or you're going to be sitting staring at hardware that you know has very little value. So it's an interesting angle where processing power is all of a sudden this kind of underlying raw element that we need. And, and part of your thesis is thinking about how to get involved in places where we haven't caught up yet. I think that computing power would be one of the most valuable resources in the world. I think it already is actually. But when you look at this from a business perspective, I think it's true. Uh, when you look at it from a national defense perspective, it's true. And I think that that, will con- that trend will not only continue, but it's actually going to accelerate. And so uh, people always talk about data is the new oil. I think computing power is the new steel. And so um, when you look at, you know, standard American mining, right, it's definitely a a tip of the hat to uh, the Rockefellers, the Carnegie's of the world, where it just says, look, this is the infrastructure on which the next 100 years is going to be built. And there is a ton of competition running at data, right? I mean, SoftBank literally has a hundred billion dollars and that's what they're trying to do. We think that there is a ton of opportunity and actually a lack of understanding on how to build, own, and maintain the computing power. And, you know, what really ends up happening is when you talk to a tech entrepreneur about, hey, we're going to do a construction project, they throw their hands up and they go, what? Like, I just want, you know, I'm just going to write software code. And so like, there's just fewer people who want to, you know, go and, and do this work. Um, and, and so we like it, right? Because again, it's... It, Differentiated for sure. Yeah. Um, let's go a completely different direction because of something that you wrote about, which I was really interested in, which is your thoughts on Barstool Sports. Um, so <laughs> a brand that probably a lot of people are now familiar with, um, something that I you know, didn't even know what this was until six months ago. And I kind of can't stop watching the business. It just, it just seems insane to me. The brand that they built, the way that they think about the business model, you wrote kind of a long write-up on it. Maybe you could summarize why, why you're interested in it like I yeah. am. Um, and I'll use that kind of in, in our last section here of our, of our chat to talk about um, some of the insights and the different ways of doing business that are reflected in, in, in a brand like Barstool. Man, Dave and Eric are going to love this. <laughs> so the, the thing I wrote said, I, I think what I said was, it'll be the most powerful media brand in the world by 2025. 
you can, I mean, people, they laughed, right? And, and, and all of that. But I think that there's a lot of substance behind it because they're doing a number of different, very intricate, nuanced things that are, you know, incredibly powerful. So one is their revenue model. They make money off physical goods. Well, now BuzzFeed's trying to do that. And all these, everyone else is now trying to do this. Well, they've been doing it for like 12, 15 years, right? That's how they survived. That and events. Uh, so I think that's one. It's just like they're not dependent on ad, right? Now, that dependency as they grow larger and larger, like that will be a very real revenue stream for them. But their core business has always been, they literally sell t-shirts. Two is audience. So where everyone else is, I mean, literally we have a debate whether people are creating fake news or not. They have this rabid digital first um, millennial audience that, you know, it's not uncommon for these guys, the individual reporters to tweet and get thousands of pieces of engagement. And that's a tweet. When they tweet their articles, they're driving incredible page views. Like people are showing up in the thousands to events that they have, where they're going to be. It's this business that um, they're a media company, part reality show, part T-shirt salesman. And then they wrap all of that up and they're doing corporate deals with a professional CEO with ESPN. You know, a, a lot of things that just the blogging community has not previously been able to do. And so I think that it has this really unique mix of content that draws that audience in. The third thing is it's a lifestyle. So, I mean, they coined a term, Saturdays are for the boys. Sounds incredibly juvenile, right? And and, and, uh, yeah, which it is, by the way, right? But it has permeated society. I've got a 21-year-old brother and like that's the rallying cry of, you know, the college scene all the way up to professional sports athletes, politicians, like, you know, and they get the videos of these guys saying Saturdays are for the boys. And so I think that, again, like they're able to create culture and the people who create culture end up being in a really powerful position. I think that you can look at like urban hip hop has done this for a long time. And, and so I think these guys are doing it for a completely different segment of the population. And then I think that the last piece is Erica said this uh, at one point where she doesn't have employees. She has sports figures or sports stars. And so if you look at it as a team, each individual reporter is a star that then has their own audience, has their own products, has their own whatever. No other media company in the world would ever do that, one. And then two is they look at this as their personalities. So if you think of them more as a reality TV show, each person has a personality, each one has an audience, right? Like you go through this whole thing. And so what they're doing is they're meshing a whole bunch of stuff into a single entity and it's all online. So they're filming everything, they're writing everything, they're, you know, they have these Twitter wars, they do all this stuff. So that's like the core foundation of the business. And then when you take all the controversy, because of course anyone who's doing all of this is so forward thing, is so controversial, all stuff where they go and they chain themselves to the NFL offices or you know, people are blast, you know, yelling at them about how uh, they're sexist. And I laugh and I say, the ESPNs of the world don't realize that they're actually helping them by creating the controversies, right? They did a show with them. They did one episode, then they canceled the show. It's almost Trump-like. Like, they're, they're sucking up all the oxygen in the room. So, so, uh, so, you know, the, so the best book I read in 2017 was a book, uh, Win Bigly, um, Scott Adams. Somebody recommended it to me, and I kind of was like, eh, I don't know if I want to, you know, whatever. But he's like, just read it. And so when I got through this book, I am absolutely convinced that Barcelona Sports, Trump, etc. What they are doing is they have figured out that we live in a very different world, right? We live in a world where because of the digital first interactions that we have and, and the sensationalism and all this stuff, that is how you drive eyeballs, attention, all this stuff. 
Well, if you've been in business for any period of time, you know that if you're able to drive eyeballs, you can quote unquote monetize it in some way, whether that becomes president, whether that's make money, what you know, whatever. And, and, and so I think that they're definitely looking for the controversies and they've been, you know, fortunate or unfortunate where there's been no lack of them. Um, and, and so I think when you look at Barcelona holistically, I don't think that they'll be a $20 billion company that, you know, no one else can compete with on a, from a financial perspective. But I think that they already are close to definitely in sports that are the most powerful, right? Yeah, ESPN has a lot of eyeballs, but ESPN can't get – yeah, they just can't get people – I mean, here was the example I said to somebody. Barstool Sports gets more people to watch a video of their former CEO, Dave Portnoy, sitting on his couch – videoing himself, like in the selfie view. He just starts live streaming and he'll have 2,000, 10,000, however many people watching. He can get more people to do that than the you know multi-billion dollar ESPN does with like a professionally created video that they post on the internet. So like what is power in today's world? Like to me, power is really like who can drive eyeballs and have their audience fulfill call to actions. I can't think of a better media company than Barstool Sports. And so you know, I shied away when I wrote this thing from saying they already are the most powerful to they will be. And, and I think that if they can continue on this path, like I see them as a billion dollar company that, you know, frankly, I just hope they don't sell it too early. <laughs> Taking those, that idea, that mindset, those lessons, and also your experience with the 64 plus, you know, whatever other investments that you've made. And you, if you had to extract a couple kind of closing thoughts or lessons for I'll call them more standard businesses, family-run businesses, smaller businesses, more bread and butter type things that are operating, maybe have been around for a long time, but are ambitious and want to grow. What would your closing thoughts be on on the lessons that you've learned from the much faster paced, full tilt world? One is definitely just persistence. Like just don't give up, right? Like you, you got a shot if you don't give up. So that, that's definitely number one. Number two is you don't need to hit home runs every time. Singles and doubles can win games. And so I think that's important. And then I think the third one, and this is like very true across anything you do, it's just the people. So whether you look at uh, the talent at Barstool Sports, whether you look at Facebook, whether you look at you know founders we want to invest in, or you look at a family business, I think making sure that you have the best people in the room, again, increases the probability you're going to be successful in whatever you're doing. And I think that gets lost a lot of times because everyone thinks that you know the new cool uh, revenue source, the new cool business model, the you know whatever is going to like save the day. But if you just have the right people in the room, like it's the pizza shop analogy. If you open up a pizza shop, you're not reinventing the wheel. If you just have operational excellence and you put it in the right location, you will be successful. We know people like to eat pizza. We know how that business works. There's thousands of them in the United States, but it just comes down to having the right people in the right processes. I think it's the same thing across you know all these businesses, whether you're a high tech business, a small business. It's just this is how the winning playbook looks, you just got to go execute it. So my closing question for everyone is for to ask what the kindest thing that anyone's ever done for you is. So it's probably my parents. I grew up in a house. I'm the oldest of five boys. My dad traveled a lot when I was younger. And my mom's a saint, obviously. We're all alive. <laughs> all have our you know arms and legs. But I remember many times as a kid where they would do things for us that wasn't didn't cost any money, but they would take us somewhere or they would just spend time with us or do things where, you know, now looking back, like there is zero chance that they were like still happy and sane and calm and like all this stuff, but they knew it was important. And so I think those are the memories probably from, you know, growing up that mean the most to me. And it was probably at the times where my parents least wanted to do that. To me, that's like the ultimate definition of kindness, right? As somebody who like doesn't need to do something, like probably doesn't even want to do it, but they do it anyways for like the betterment of somebody else or the enjoyment of somebody else. And, and so I think that's probably what it is, is just like 
I'm so grateful for them having done that. I don't get to see my brothers as much. I don't get to see my family as much, but like we have those memories. And, and so I think that's probably, um, you know, what it is, which uh, it's nice to not have to like go that far to, to kind of, you know, find that. Well, this has been fun. I'm bummed that we're a little short on time. Maybe what it means is that we'll have to do a round two, especially as you start to deploy this fun number two at full tilt. So thanks for your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Hey, everyone. Patrick here again. To find more episodes of Invest Like the Best, go to investorfieldguide.com forward slash podcast. If you're a book lover, you can also sign up for my book club at investorfieldguide.com forward slash book club. After you sign up, you'll receive a full investor curriculum right away and then three to four suggestions of new books every month. You can also follow me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Oshag, O-S-H-A-G. If you enjoy the show, please leave a quick review for us on iTunes, which will help more people discover Invest Like the Best. Thanks so much for listening.